You're listening to the Move to Value podcast, powered by Chess Health Solutions. The Move to Value podcast is dedicated to helping healthcare providers understand and make the transition into value-based care. We do this through conversations and the sharing of innovative ideas with practitioners, experts, and leaders throughout the healthcare industry. Our mission is to sustainably transform the healthcare experience for the patient, provider, and care team by cultivating a value-oriented, compassionate, and health-aligned community. In this episode of the Move to Value podcast, we finish our recap of the Move to Value Summit Nursing Edition, which was held on December 6th. Today we hear from Chess Senior Director of Clinical Operations and Practicing Physician, Dr. Kim Vasudi. As a practicing physician, Dr. Vasudi has a unique perspective on falls, risk assessments, and prevention of injury. Her presentation covers who is at risk for falls, strategies for fall prevention, and falls risk assessments. Um, Today we're going to talk about um, falls and fall risk assessment. Um, The objectives are what is the definition of falls, who is at risk for falls, why is preventing falls important, what are the different types of fall risk assessments, and what can be done to prevent falls for those at risk. So I like to start with a patient story. I think it grounds us and kind of gets us all on the same page. And of course, I do see patients in the clinic. I do work in a clinic two uh, days a week, and then I work with chess um, three days a week. So in my clinic setting, I had a patient about two weeks ago named Joe. Um, He is 87 years old. And when he came into the office, it was just for his routine checkup. It wasn't a well visit. It was just his sixth month follow up. He lives in an assisted living facility with his wife. When he came in, I noticed he likes to wear a back brace. It just gives him a little stability and he uses a walker. He didn't have any history of falls. He does have a history of bladder cancer, degenerative disc disease, diabetes with neuropathy and he's on a long list of medications. What prompted me to kind of look at that is when he came in, he does follow up with the pain clinic, and I noticed that his um, his pregabalin or Lyrica was increased from 75 milligrams twice daily to 100 milligrams twice daily. It sort of prompted me to take a little bit closer look at his medication list because that's a pretty big dose for this gentleman, um, and especially with the other medications he's taking. So he's also taking Cymbalta or Duloxetine, Metformin, Atorvastatin, and Temazepam to help him sleep at night. When we went over his blood work, his hemoglobin A1C was 6.2. So one of the things I I noticed too with Joe is, and especially patients in this age, they start to accumulate medications. They also start to accumulate doctors. So each doctor is giving them something to solve a problem. And that's what the patient is looking for. What they don't understand is sometimes, and sometimes the providers don't either, is some of these things start to work against each other. Uh, You know, with Joe, he thinks every doctor's trying to help him and he's just taking the medication. So I really wanted to, as as a primary care physician, as a family doctor, I just wanted to look at the bigger picture and make sure that these medications are appropriate for him. So first I started with, um, you know, he he the medication pregabalin was increased. So I, I left that one alone. We'll see how that goes. But I talked to him about the Cymbalta. With Cymbalta, we were we started in my clinic with him to help with pain management because Cymbalta can or Deloxetine can help with depression, anxiety, and pain control. 
since the pregabalin was increased, I started talking to him about it and explained to him, you know, do we really need all of these medications? Are you willing to really take a look at this and start taking some things away? Because it may be that it'll increase your risk of falling. So he was in agreement. It's like, yeah, I like the idea of taking something away. So we did actually, we're weaning him off of the duloxetine. He felt like, I'm not really depressed. I haven't had any depression or anxiety. I think we can try to take that away. The next thing I looked at, and um, Rebecca alluded to this sort of at the end of her lecture, is his A1C. You know, as an older adult and an elderly man, um, I can look at his A1C and say, do I really need to have that strict, that strict control of it? And the American Diabetes Association actually um, says that if the patient is at a higher risk, that they're very complex or in poor health, their A1C goal can be less than 8.5. So I had him very strictly controlled and I talked to him about maybe it's time we start backing off your diabetes medication. He's only on metformin. So honestly, I just stopped it. He's very good about checking his blood sugars. And so he's going to let me know. And believe it or not, this 87 year old man knows how to use a portal. He will message me and he does. So don't think that just because they're elderly that they won't use the portal system that we have in some of our EMRs, this gentleman will use it. So we make, yes, I agree. So we um, made a plan that if I stop it, yes, you're going to keep an eye on it and you're going to message me if you're having any issues with your blood sugar. So we stopped the metformin. The last thing, and I don't know how I let this one go by for so long, is that he was being prescribed by me to mazepam to help him sleep at night. That was a little bit more of a struggle to kind of talk him out of that one because he had been on it forever. So what I did was um, talk to him about sort of the risk factors for him being on this medication. And I will talk more about this as the lecture goes on. What I did in this situation with him is I'm weaning him off the temazepam and I started him on a medication called trazodone. We talked about how that'll help him sleep. And if there are some depressive symptoms that could potentially come back because we stopped or we from the duloxetine, then maybe I'll capture that with the trazodone as well. So we made some changes, hopefully to try to improve his steadiness and pre prevent him from falling. And I'll refer back to Joe as we talk. So what is a fall? And there's all kinds of fun de definitions out there. I probably could have put 12 on here, but I chose the World Health Organization definition for a fall. It's an event which results in a person coming to rest inadvertently on the ground or floor or other lower level. So pretty much what we in can envision when someone falls, they didn't mean to, they were standing or they were upward and they landed in a, in a lower position than they were intending. So statistics are a lot of fun. I like to throw them out. Hopefully your eyes won't glaze over, but um, it's kind of nice to know why is this even important? Why do we care about falls and fall risk? Um, it is the second leading cause of unintentional injury deaths worldwide after road traffic injuries. In the United States, falls are the most common cause of non-fatal injuries for people that are over 65 years of age. Female, females fall more than males. However, men are more likely to die from fall-related injuries. As people get older, their fall risk increases. And up to 32% of individuals above the age of 65 will fall yearly in the community. So I wanted to point that out because that's not the hospital and that's not the nursing home. That's just in their homes. 
alcohol-related injuries are the most common cause of accidental deaths for those that are over the age of 65 in general. And then some statistics that kind of give us an idea of the cost of falls um, and hospitalizations for falls. Fall-related injuries account for about 15% of re-hospitalizations in the first month after discharge from the hospital. And I know a lot of the work that our care coordination is doing with, within uh, CHESS and, and with our value partners is trying to prevent re-hospitalizations, but fall-related injuries are something we need to be paying attention to. So the total estimated costs for non-fatal falls is anywhere from 16 to $19 billion per year. It's a lot of money. And as an accountable care organization and working with value-based contracts and the work that we're doing, that's the kind of money we want to try to save for the system and for our patients. The total estimated costs for fatal falls is $170 million. There are two types of fall risk, um, and I think of it as, um, I think it's pretty easy to remember because intrinsic fall risk is it means it's within the patient. It's something that's happening within the patient that will increase their risk of fall or the type of falls that they have. And then an extrinsic is something outside of them. It's in the environment. So a couple of, um, of um, examples for intrinsic risk, orthostatic hypotension. It's really common in the elderly just by virtue of getting older, but then you throw in the blood pressure medications that we are titrating up um, on them, and then you can actually cause them to fall. Limited endurance, so our patients who aren't very active and they cannot go very far, walk out to the mailbox, they just can't make it, they get weak and they fall. Impaired vision, again, kind of inherent to getting older, but if the vision is failing, if they have cataracts or any kind of eye diagnoses, um, that could impair their vision and they could trip on something and fall. And then alcohol use is another one where, believe it or not, our, our elderly patients are turning to alcohol um, more and more. So extrinsic could be something like poor lighting in their home, clutter, slippery floor, they can have an uneven threshold. So we're thinking about what's going on in their home. And then caregiver support or lack thereof, maybe they just don't have the help that they need in their home. Other things to consider, and this is something that you saw with Joe, is the use of benzodiazepine. So he was on temazepam to help him sleep at night and that increased his risk of fall. That would be an intrinsic risk. If a patient is using four or more prescription medications, so even Joe's list, and that wasn't all-inclusive, he is at increased risk of fall just because of that medication list. And then the muscular strength or range of motion impairment, he walked in with a walker and a back brace. So all of those just looking at him when he walked in the building, I, you know, I can see that that's an issue. Of course, comorbidities can also um, increase risk of fall like diabetes, foot ulcers, we talked about neuropathy with him, stroke, syncope, anemia, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's. 
Vitamin D deficiency. Now I want you to kind of keep that in your mind because when I when I started to put this together, I thought, well, how does that affect risk for fall? I can see where it can affect risk of injury because maybe a patient will have weakened bones, osteoporosis. But believe it or not, and we'll talk about it again later, this can actually help with muscle strength too. So if they have vitamin D deficiency, they may have weaker muscles. If they have glaucoma or cataracts, and then believe it or not, with patient characteristics, the fear of falling can actually increase the risk of fall. Um, it's kind of like a self-fulfilling prophecy. The fear itself is going to create the situation. So fear of falling, and I have patients like that. Um, some of them don't wanna get on the table in my office because they're afraid they're gonna fall. Um, gait problems, impaired ADLs, frailty, inability to follow instructions. So you have that patient who um, they're their, their daughter brings them into the office, but they're telling them, mom, sit here, mom, don't do that, mom, put your foot here. And they're just not able to follow those instructions and then adapt to a changing environment. Just coming into my office sometimes throws them off a little bit. And then of course, recent hospitalization, which is something that our nursing staff is, is very uh, attuned to, is that you're taking care of these patients as they're coming out of the hospital. This is a perfect opportunity to kind of assess their risk factors for fall and maybe we can help to put some sort resources around the patient to keep them from falling and then being re-hospitalized. So we talked about risk factors for fall, but what about risk factors for injury? So there's gonna be patients who fall. We've probably all fallen. We have dogs that we've tripped over. There's that, that one day where we get ice and we slip. So, you know, falling is not uncommon. However, what is the risk factor for injury? So once I fall, how likely am I to have an injury result from it? There are some predictors of injury or fracture. Um, of course, women are more likely to fracture than men. Um, patients that are over the age of 75 are more likely to have an injury. White race, BMI of less than 22.8, so my, my skinnier people, uh, history of a stroke are more likely to have an injury from a fall. If they have cognitive impairment, my patients with Alzheimer's disease, dementia, one or more Rossau Breslau impairment. So that is a mouthful. Um, but basically, there's three components to that. A patient is, um, if they have one or more of these impairments, they would be unable to walk upstairs, um, unable to perform heavy work, and that can include things like sweeping, mopping, um, carrying a load of laundry around their home. Or now, if they can't do all that, I'm sure they're not able to walk a mile, but walking a mile is one of those uh, characteristics. And then if there's use of anti-epileptic drugs, so things like um, Dilantin, for instance, if they're using those medications, they're at more risk for injury. Things also to consider um, if they've had a previous fracture and then if they've fallen in the past year, they're more likely to be injured with a fall. So in what I what I'm curious about though is like are what are those patients that if they can injure, we don't want that. But who are the ones that are at most risk of 
death or mortality from a fall. Um, the most common is a head injury with a fall and they're taking an antiplatelet medication. So you can imagine that they would have some type of brain bleed um, associated with the fall. That's more likely to result in a death. If they're frail, and um, later on in this discussion, I'll talk about frailty and how we assess that within chess and how we're encouraging our value partners to assess frailty so we can get ahead of some of this. Um, advanced age, so the older the patient, and then we talked about this already, but white men over the age of 85 are more likely to die from a fall um, uh, versus a female. And then again, the BMI of less than 22.8. So I'm talking to the, you know you guys about this because the fall preventions falls on the nurse. And this is true for both inpatient and outpatient. For those of you that are doing inpatient or have done inpatient, you're the experts on this and you know um, that falls and fall-related injuries are associated with the quality of nursing care in an acute care setting. So there's there, the hospital system and the nursing system is being graded on this. Um, it's a nursing quality indicator and it's monitored by the American Nurses Association. So these um, patients that um, falling in the hospital, those kind of statistics are falling on the nurse. In the outpatient setting, the, pa the patients, um, less than half of older adults, aren't even telling us that they've fallen. They're certainly not telling me, and, um, and maybe they're telling you guys because you're the ones that first walk in the room and you're the ones asking that question. So we have to ask them. Um, if they're not gonna tell us, we have to prompt them and we have to get them to speak up and let us know if they're falling. For patients that are over the age of 65, we need to ask them at least once a year. And it's really one, one of the great best times to do it is during the um, Medicare well visit. Are you falling? Have you fallen? And kind of decide if there's a risk for fall there. Fall screening is a quality measure in the Medicare Shared Savings Program, and that's part of our accountable care organization. And for patients with a history of falls or at risk for falls, we want to really find out who they are, and then have a more comprehensive assessment. What are the risks? What are the risks? And then what is it within the patient that is causing that risk? And then we want to refer them to the appropriate resources. So is that physical therapy? Is that home health? That's what we're going to determine. So I'm going to split it up a little bit into inpatient and outpatient. Mostly my talk is going to be about the outpatient setting because that's where a lot of us are. But in the inpatient setting, a little bit more statistics. Um, it is the most common adverse event in the hospital setting. Anywhere from 700,000 to a million patients uh, falls occur in the U.S. hospitals, resulting in about 250,000 injuries and 11,000 deaths. 2% of hospitalized patients will fall at least once during their hospital stay. One in four falls result in an injury. And so all of this to say that this is a big issue for patients. It really does affect them. It increases the risk of injury, mortality, and decreased quality of life. Because even if it, um, it could result in an injury that then impacts them later on. And for the hospital, of course, we thought we look at the expense of this. It is increased length of stay, cost of care, and even lawsuits. And most importantly, Medicare stopped paying for falls that occur in the hospital and fall-related injuries in 2008. So we're going to talk about some fall assessment tools.
Um, and I do split this up. So there's tons of them, guys. And I kind of grab the most common um, and I, I've uh, split it up into inpatient and outpatient. And one of the questions I had when I was making this is like, what's the best one? And I looked and honestly, there's lots of data on all of them doing a good job. So I think of this as more like when my patients ask me, what's the best diet? Um, and I say the one you stick to, you know, what's the diet that you stick to? Because they all can work in their own way, um, but we have to use them and stick to them to have to see results. So the three that inpatient ones that I'm gonna talk about, and you guys um, in the back of your mind, think about ones you know about or the ones you are utilizing now in your healthcare systems because I'm gonna I'm gonna do one of those polls too and see which ones um, you guys are aware of or using. So the first one, um, the Johns Hopkins fall risk assessment tool, the Hendrick II fall risk model, and the Morse fall scale. The Morse fall scale, I believe, is the one that we're using within Atrium Wake. Um, and then we're using a truncated version of that in internal in the um, outpatient setting. All right, so lots to look at here, but I'll try to make it simple for you. Um, this is the John Hopkins fall risk assessment tool. This seems like a really common one that's utilized. Um, it really does split the patient into um, high risk and low risk. Um, and it's a lot of questions. And um, um, so you have to go through this list and kind of add up the points and things to bring to your attention. Of course, this we've already talked about age, the history of their falls. For this one in particular, they talk about elimination. So are they incontinent? Because if they're incontinent in one, in either urine or um, bowel, they're at increased risk of falls. We've already talked about medications, so that's on here too. They, you assess the patient and the medications that they're taking. Another one that is in here that's um, to be um, brought to your attention is if they have anything kind of attached to them. So if they have IVs, a chest tube, catheters, anything attached to them, that's gonna make them a risk for fall while they're in the hospital. If they're using any kind of mobility devices or they're unsteady, they have visual impairment, and then their cognition. So if you look at the list, you know, thinking about patients that you've taken care of or ones that are coming out of the hospital that you're assessing and doing uh, evaluations on, that doesn't take much to sort of add up points here to make a patient a fall risk. Um, so the John Hopkins, oh, sorry, Morse scale is the next one. Um, and this one is kind of interesting because it's like giant numbers. So if you looked at the John Hopkins, it was like, onesie twosies and you add them up well these are like giant numbers 25 30 um, so the number gets high pretty quickly um, history of falls ambulatory aids like the crutches and um, walkers the ivs um, gait abnormalities they do not take into consideration medication on this one so that's something that's a little bit different about the morse fall uh, scale And then the last one, um, the Hendrick two fall risk model. This one's interesting because they actually, and I'll talk about it when we get into the outpatient setting, but they utilize an outpatient fall risk assessment called the get up and go test. 
This one seems a little bit hard to do in the inpatient setting, but maybe not. I mean, I have not utilized this myself in the inpatient setting. Um, so let's talk it over. This one's different because it at, talks about depression and dizziness, which was not necessarily on the other ones. They give an extra point if the patient is male, which the other ones um, ne didn't necessarily do. That was more age-related. They For this one, the medications do factor back in again. Um, the get-up-and-go test, I'll, I'll talk about a little bit more, but this one is one where the patient has to get up and be timed as they ambulate a certain distance, turn around, come back and sit down again. So in my mind, as I'm thinking about it, some of my patients that have been hospitalized, myself who has been hospitalized before, you know, that may not be something that's easily assessed depending on the situation, whether they are on a medication, whether they have pain control or surgical um, uh, processes that have been done. So this one might be a little bit more difficult to do, um, but uh, you know, it's a possibility and you all may have had experience with that as um, in the hospital setting. What I like about this one or the one we just saw, the numbers are small. I don't know why that seems to be a thing for me. Like when the numbers are really big, it doesn't make sense to me. Why is why do we go from zero to 25? So that one I liked because the numbers were smaller. Sorry, that's just a math thing, I guess, for me. All right, so for the outpatient setting, um, there's three that I talk about here um, that I mean are very common. Timed up and go test, four stage balance test, and 30 second chair stand. And these are all ones that are really commonly used in the outpatient setting. So we'll go through each of those as well. So we talked about the timed up and go test. This was um, part of the Hendrick II fall risk model. All right, so this is a nice handout. This is from the CDC. I love it because everything's on there and it's a, a one pager and it can be filled out in the office. I'm sure there's ways that we can incorporate this into the EMR as well, which I really appreciate as a provider. And I'm sure my nurses do as well. When it's already in the EMR, you pull it up and you mark your answers and then it's everyone can see it. So for this one, um, you gotta have a chair um, and the patient can has to be able to stand up and walk no assistive devices so they have to stand up from the chair walk to a line that's about 10 feet away turn around come back and sit down and they're timed they have to be able to do that within 12 seconds I have not tried this. I think I should have before this uh, lecture to see how quickly I can do it. Hopefully I can beat it, um, but that's important to, to um, beat it within 12 seconds. If they can do that, then they are not at risk for fall. The four stage balance test, this, um, this one's a little bit trickier. So the patient doesn't necessarily have to walk, um, but they have to be able to hold their position. I know the fella in their picture is walking, but that's not quite what this one is about. If you look at the right side where it shows the little shoes, the first thing they have to do is stand with their feet side by side, okay, like this. And then you you make them stand there um, for 10 seconds. If they can't do it, you put the amount of time that they can, but at least 10 seconds. Then you want them to move that foot, sort of the, the one foot um, at the instep of the other foot, and then hold that for 10 seconds to see if they can balance with that um, change in position. And then the harder one is putting one foot in front of the other like that and having them stay um, from heel touching the toe and then timing them to see if they can balance. That one's tougher. 
And then lastly, this one's probably the toughest of all, is that they have to um, stand on one foot um, and their time to see how long they can stand on one foot. So the third one that I'm gonna talk about is the 30 second chair stand. This one is a workout, I'm not gonna lie. And so as I think about which patients to try this on, they cannot use assistive devices for this one either. So this is probably my patients that maybe I don't uh, think that there's much of an issue, but maybe they are, in, um, uh, when I talk about EFI uh, in a minute, I'll, I'll kind of point this out. There are patients that I can eyeball and say, oh, this this one doesn't, they look frail. I mean, I mean, I, I really need to watch this one and maybe really need to dig in to see if they're having some issues with their their gait or their balance. And then there's some patients that are pulled because of a higher EFI. And I'll talk about that where I wouldn't have maybe seen it in them, but the statistics are showing me that they're at high risk for frailty. This might be one that I would utilize on them because they can, maybe they're not using an assistive device, um, they look like they're in pretty good shape, but this might show me that maybe they're not. So this one, when I say it's a workout, is that they have to sit down not using their hands and stand up as many times as possible within 30 seconds. So that's a pretty good workout. Um, and then of course, men and women are both scored differently. Um, and you can tell if they have issues with their balance and their gait potentially um, because of their balance by how many times they can sit down and stand up within those 30 seconds. So I alluded to EFI, here we go. I'm gonna talk about EFI now. This is something that we really are excited about at Chess. Um, it is utilized at Atrium Wake. Um, it is the Electronic Frailty Index. It's a tool that we use to help easily and accurately identify frail patients. And so I talked a little bit about this eyeball test. Um, you know, when Joe walked in the office with his back brace and his walker, I could tell that Joe is frail. But there are some patients of mine who are very mobile and kind of, um, trick me a little bit from a perspective of like just seeing them walk in. And then when I see the EFI, I say, oh, they actually are frail. So let me try to explain to you what that means. Um, the definition of frailty is someone who has decreased reserve in both physiology and day-to-day -day function, leading to a vulnerability to acute stressors. That eyeball test, we're only about right, um, we're, excuse me, we're wrong 40% of the time. So we're not really good at it, figuring out a patient's frail just by looking at them. The EFI is a tool that is embedded in our EHR and our EMRs. And it really pulls data from a lot of different places to sort of spit out this number that tells us how frail a patient is. It uses about 50 different data sources, and it can be medication list, function, medical diagnoses, their weight, remember how much BMI kind of factored in before, their blood pressure, and even their blood tests. And it can predict worse health outcomes, including falls, It can inc um, including increased healthcare costs to the organization and mortality. And knowing that I like small numbers, the range is from zero to one. So that I like, don't know why. Um, but fit patients, their EFI is less than 0.1. Pre-frail patients, their EFI is um, 
between 0.1 and 0.2, so they're kind of rising risk. And then our frail patients, their EFI is less than 0.21. So we've talked about this with your organizations, and some of them are, are thinking about utilizing EFI and plugging it into the EMR. Some of them have already started steps to do that. What I really like about this is it puts a lot of uh, power in your hands as nurses and care coordination. And I'll talk about this in a second, but you can take this number and you can direct providers on how to care for the patient better. You guys serve this up to us so that we know, oh wait, this patient is frail. I couldn't tell by looking at them. You're gonna see the number and you're gonna serve it up to me and say, you need to take a better look at this patient and assess them better for fall risk or even do some advanced care planning. So at CHESS, we are doing some pilots with this. Um, and we, our clinical team, so you've already met Shannon, you've met Rebecca, we have a whole host of us on our clinical team. And we are really excited about working on getting advanced care planning, care models in place for our organizations. We want patients to be, when they are frail, in that pre-frail time, to start having conversations with their providers about what do they want their health care to look like? What do they want to be done as they're aging? And if they have unable to make decisions for themselves, do we have it in place? Do we have the paperwork done that says who is responsible for making those decisions and what is it the patient wants? It kind of puts the power back on the patient for end of life decisions. So within CHESS, we use it for advanced care planning. During the Medicare well visit, if a patient has an EFI that's greater than 0.2, so they're in the frail state, um, they the care coordination will make a recommendation to the provider to have an advanced care planning discussion. And I'll see this in my practice even um, before a Medicare well visit, I'll get a little message that says this patient is considered frail, consider having this advanced care planning discussion. And it really tees it up for me so that I don't I can have the discussion with a patient who may not look frail when they walk in the door. And for pharmacy, so you've heard Rebecca talk, for pharmacy, the EFI is utilized to really start de-prescribing, especially for diabetics. So with Joe, when we saw that his um, A1C was well below seven, this would be a patient that the pharmacy can then make a recommendation to start taking away those medications. So I was already thinking like a pharmacist when I walked in the door, knowing how we are working in chess, and I started taking away the medication. They can also start deprescribing in general. So again, I was starting to think like a pharmacist at that visit, and I was taking away temazepam, and I was looking at the, 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 uh, the duloxetine and just trying to figure out ways that I can take away medications to help this patient from falling. And as care coordination and as nurses, you can always pull pharmacy in if you think that that's needed. You can also have an opinion about that, You know, speak to the provider about the medications. Um, Pharmacy, of course, can make those recommendations to the provider. So these are all, it's a tool to help guide care for patients that is really for all of us to utilize. So there's been success and there's studies that show that EFI is helpful. Um, I promise it's not like we're selling anything. This is just to be used. We don't have to 
there's nothing, there's no uh, financial thing here. It's just like, we're using it to help patients and to try to get ahead. Um, what I'd really love, I guess my dream is that we all start putting our heads together and say, well, how do we impact patients otherwise? We have this pilot that we're doing within CHESS to impact advanced care planning, but how do we start thinking about impacting patients by getting ahead? Um, do they need home health? Do they need exercise? Do they need physical therapy way before they start to have a fall? Um, and so would that EFI be something that we could utilize to start making some of those other um, pilots come to fruition? So I'll be quick here because this is just a, a bunch of studies that have been done, but and a lot of them are retrospective, kind of looking back at patients who've had surgeries or had an endoscopy. And they showed that if a patient, by going back and looking at their EFI, if they had a high EFI, they were more likely to have um, uh, be discharged to an acute care facility. They would be more likely to pass away. They would be more likely to come back to the hospital after a procedure. And one of the interesting things I think is sort of the last one is this preoperative risk stratification. So this is a patient that is taking an elective surgery and you wanna look at, is their EFI high? Are they gonna have um, a negative impact after a surgery because they're already frail? And so they show that if it's a non-emergency surgery and they are frail, that they might actually have higher readmission rates higher mortality, um, they may need more post-acute care needs to be met. So just looking at that EFI gives us an idea um, what that patient's outcome could be. And maybe we should make other decisions um, if it's a non-emergency surgery, maybe that shouldn't happen in somebody who has a high EFI. So if you you know if this is something that is interesting to you, um, you know speak with your uh, vet, your healthcare organizations. We are happy to support it. Um, it's embedded in the EMR, like I said. You guys serve it up to uh, to provider during the Medicare well visits, and then we can get ahead. This is the part that makes me excited. It's like how do we target these patients so we can get ahead and provide them services and interventions before we get to a problem, such as care coordination, home health, physical therapy, and our de-prescribing efforts. So we talked about falls, how to assess patients for risk. So how do we stop them from falling? There's a lot of research about exercise. It's probably the most commonly studied intervention and because it works, um, it is effective. Now, if you just say go exercise and a patient just goes and exercises, they get about a 14% reduction in falls, but that increases to about 37% or more if we target them for specific issues that they have that are causing their falls. So keep that in the back of your mind that we can go exercise, but if we target them for with specific ways to strengthen themselves, we're going to get better outcomes. Um, the most effective is length, uh, excuse me, leg strengthening and balance training like Tai Chi. It's so good for elderly patients because it's low impact and it really helps with their balance. Um, and then it's just, it has to be tailored. So it's not sufficient all by itself. We really have to tailor it to the patient and their individual risk factors. Another prevention strategy is a clinic. Now these are harder to come by because clinics are expensive. You have to staff a clinic and you know um, have patients go to the clinic. But when there was a clinic set up and patients were referred there for falls and balance, 
they had a 50% reduction in falls because they were all, it was focused straight on what they were having their uh, risk factors, uh, what their risk factors were, and then targeting those strategies. And of course, nurse initiatives. So that's where you guys come in and care coordination. Um, when they, they've done a study where they looked at nurse-led care pathways for patients who discharge from the ED after a fall, um, and they found that those, those patients were at, um, they were less likely to be in the hospital a long time. They were functionally more independent six months after their fall. They had less ED visits. Um, so you guys know this already because this is your bread and butter. Your interventions, your supportive patients, it makes a difference and it changes their outcome. So this alone, you know, warms my heart. The, what the nurses are doing to help our patients within CHESS, within your value partners, it actually makes a difference and patients are going to the hospital less. So what are those targeted strategies? I kind of alluded to that, where we target the patient for their issues. We wanna assess the patient. We want the right population. We wanna de-prescribe and do some medication review. We have to look in the house somehow, whether it's home health, physical therapy, somebody, because that environment or those extrinsic factors are also key. If we can eliminate some of those, we're gonna eliminate fall risk. So we wanna look at hazards like their carpets and their poor lighting, and we wanna add handrails where necessary to help them to stay balanced. We wanna educate and counsel the patients, like don't wear socks in the house without like the little slip guard. I mean, there's so many things that patients are doing that they're not paying attention to. Having the throw rugs around, um, having things that are cluttered that they can slip on. Lots of um, education is necessary and Shannon definitely gave you guys some good tips on how to do that. And of course, exercise and physical therapy and targeting those patients with um, specific exercises and physical therapy. So I'm finally going to get to the vitamin D thing, which I've already pretty much described. So there's some miscellaneous preventions, which I thought were pretty interesting that I thought you guys would like to hear about. And vitamin D and calcium supplementation was one of them. Um, we know that it's going to prevent fracture potentially because we're keeping the bones strong, but it also keeps the muscles strong. So it's not only about fracture um, prevention, but also keeping the patients strong so that they can balance and stay upright. Um, shoes, um, I talked a little bit about slips, you know, slip uh, putting on socks or like slippers. Um, you want a shoe with a thin hard midsole because like running shoes with a thick soft midsole, they're more likely to fall. They just don't have that sort of, uh, they don't feel the ground as well through something that's thicker like that. So a thinner, harder midsole is better kind of shoe for someone to prevent falls. All right, so just to summarize, and I'm, I'm, I'm gonna do this, and then we've got a few more slides to go. Um, you wanna screen, and actually, Shannon, you did the same thing in your slides, screen, assess, intervene, and evaluate. Um, so screening the patient for fall risk, using a standardized tool, flag any abnormals so that you can do additional assessments. Then we get to the assessment. We do the gait and balance assessment, medication, vision, home environment, intervene, make a referral. And I'm gonna talk about that in a minute as what kind of referrals can be made for physical therapy, to the pharmacy team, to home health or community health resources, and then evaluate. Did we make an impact? What were the interventions that were implemented? Was it quick enough? Was it effective? 
Did they get better? Did their gait or balance improve? And did we keep them from falling at all or again if they were already um, had a fall previously? So the study initiative is something that was developed and implemented by the CDC, and it kind of takes all of that into account. So I just, in case you guys want to look this up, they've got a great all kinds of videos and handouts on their website for this, but it stands for Stopping Elderly Accidents, Deaths, and Injuries. It consists of screening the patients, assessing for risk factors, and intervening by using clinical and community strategies. And you want to do this on a patient every year um, after the age of 65. They also talk about vitamin D in their study initiative, which I thought was really neat. Um, knowing that there was some studies that showed that that was effective, they also brought that into their initiative. So they say, um, educate about fall prevention, assess if they're taking vitamin D, refer to an exercise program, and then every year check this. Of course, every year also check and see if we're getting better. Are there is their gait and their strength and their balance improving? Review their medications and home hazards, and then intervene like we talked about. Um, maybe they need to go to physical therapy. Maybe they need to go to an eye doctor. Um, maybe we need to send them uh, someone into the home to assess for um, safety in their home. So I've threw this one in here because this is kind of one of my favorites. So this is one of those ways that we can refer. Um, this is a, ref, uh, a way to refer for help for the patient to get the physical therapy that they need or the home health evaluation that they need. So Safe Strides is something that um, we've used at the cornerstone portion of Atrium Wake. I don't know if you guys have, have heard all those names before, but that I was originally from the Cornerstone um, group. And so we had a, a relationship. Um, they are now called Center Well. They had another name before, but where if a patient had a uh, positive risk for fall, that my, my system would automatically fire a potential referral, like I could refer to Safe Strides if I wanted to. So what that is, is um, it's a tailored, we like that word, um, treatment to the patient. We like that because that's the most effective. It included, includes nursing, physical therapy, and occupational therapy. They do um, identify causes for the fall, which we like because then you can tailor the treatment. And then they do the uh, evaluation for vision, balance. Um, they also review medications. They can recommend if someone needs a walker or a cane, and then they look at the home. They also uh, develop an exercise program for the patient. So y'all know I like statistics. So they, um, this is their statistics. They say 95% of patients demonstrated improved balance and mobility. 95% of patients showed a decrease in fall risk at discharge. 74% demonstrated improved gait speed, an indicator of risk of future hospitalization. So we did it, remember we did a, um, a gait speed um, evaluation in the office. So they showed an improvement in that. And then they showed a 65% reduction in neuropathic pain in their patients. And overall cost of care was lowered because of that. So this is their, um, bar graphs showing the improvement of the patients when they started on, on each of these scales and assessment. I won't make you look at this for very long um, and how they started and how they finished and they did they divided it up by age. 
So that brings me to the conclusion. Um, and I really do thank your thank you for your attention. Um, basically, I guess takeaways from my um, lecture is that I really want you to ask patients about fall risk at least once a year if they're over 65. We want to try to get ahead of things. I like this because why why wait till there's a problem? Let's prevent it from the beginning. Um, EFI is a really great way to do that because we can target patients for prevention. We want to intervene when there is a problem, when they do have a risk for fall or have fallen. We want to make sure that we tailor uh, the um, help for them so that they can get the kind of uh, physical therapy that they need and exercise regimen that they need. And then, of course, we want less falls. So uh, I appreciate your time. If you have any questions, please let me know. This is the Move to Value podcast powered by Chess Health Solutions. We hope you have enjoyed this episode. If you would like more information about this and other episodes, you can head over to movetovaluepodcast.com to check out all of the available resources. If you're interested in continuing to hear about value-based care and how it impacts you, you can sign up for our email notifications or subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcasting platform. Also, we would love it if you would share the Move to Value podcast across your networks and leave a rating or review. Thanks for listening.